Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where we share stories and tips to help you run a better farming business and create your very own freedom farm. If you're looking to work smarter and not harder in your farm business, welcome, you're in the right place. G'day everyone, welcome once again to Profitable Farmer. In the last couple of podcasts, we've had Robbo, we've had Tracy, and it's just with great pleasure that I invite Terry Tran back to a Profitable Farmer to hang out with us again. As I'm sure many of you know, Terry's another one of those incredible coaches and mentors that are part of the FOA team that um, provide amazing investment advice and mentoring around um, equity market trading to our farming community. Terry's just back pre- in December. He went over to Egypt for six weeks. And I'm keen just to touch base with Terry first and foremost to understand more about that trip, his highlights. Um, just such a great example of what's possible when you build out a business that works for you. Terry, welcome. Great to have you back with us. A pleasure always, Jeremy. And always great to be back as well. So one of the things and one of the constructs that we coach around is helping people bring their farms under management and creating a freedom farm. And, you know, in reality, our businesses, Terry, should work for us, not us for them. But so many of us are stuck, trapped in the paddocks, if you like, doing the work of our businesses. Mm. Um, Tell us about your six-week holiday to Egypt. How was that for you? And how valuable is it that you've got a business that works for you so that you can enjoy these international adventures with Evelyn? Yeah, I think it's um, just want to say it is very important that you sort of balance out, you know, uh, financial and business uh, with life itself and having adventures because that just keeps you going. And everything I do literally by the by the beginning, actually not even beginning, at the end of a year, what I always do is I just plan for the entire year. And my very first thing that I always do with a calendar, a lot of business people, they'll start putting oh, where, you know, what's happening with their business, et cetera, and then blocking out time. So what I do, which I've been doing for almost 20 years now, is always blocking out and blocking out the time literally for the family holidays and having that first as a foundation. And what happens, I think, as a business owner and investor is that you look forward to that. So you actually, in fact, work harder knowing that there's a massive reward at the end. So generally, I try to do at least two trips a year. And every quarter, I do to go somewhere as well, but more local. But then having that, it's like, oh, it's coming up soon. So I don't mind working harder. Um, and, you know, that sometimes when challenges arise, it's okay because you know that there's a, a, a massive reward at the end of the year and you're going to have a good break as well uh, and, and have a bit of fun. So that's in that context uh, that why I do this. But in terms of where I went, um, yeah, we went to Egypt, Jordan, and also Israel. So that's, I've traveled quite a lot, but this was the very first time sort of in the Middle East area um, where it's an eye opener and just seeing the perspective of, in a way, how lucky we have it in Australia because, you know, we complain about this and complain about that. Uh, I'm in Sydney, so all the Sydney traffic, et cetera. But when you go to Cairo, I will never complain about Sydney traffic ever again because they've got like, what, 20 plus million people in the one big city and they've got traffic lights that actually don't work. So they're there, but they've turned them all off. And it's just little, like literally police, uh, the police standing in the middle of a street and trying to direct traffic and with beeping all over the place, narrowly missing them. And yet you've got donkeys, horses, tuk-tuks, cars, trucks, all trying to scramble in and then shop owners and uh, worry about their stock or their shop being hit by a car. So they run out and sort of guide the traffic as well. So it's actually quite an eye-opener to see how lucky we have it in, in our country, the lucky country versus what they have in um, yeah in Egypt. Um, yeah, besides all the history and stuff like that as well. How lucky are we? I think being in Australia and on farms and, and doing what we're lucky enough to do, we truly are just some of the most fortunate people on the planet, aren't we? Uh, no, definitely, definitely. And, and uh, you know, I'm seeing that as well. And then uh, I was also lucky enough to get in, onto a hot air balloon to see sunrise over the, the Nile Valley, Nile River, plus seeing the Valley of the Kings uh, on one of the days as well. Actually, no, it was it was literally uh, New Year's Day that I did that to start the new year on a, in a hot air balloon to see that. And I didn't realize how, you know, when you're going to the desert, so you think that that's all there is. But then when you're, you're high in the air, you see the amount of farming land. On one side, it's just half green. 
the other, uh, which is being irrigated by the, the Nile, obviously the longest river on the planet, Nile. And then the other hand, it's just desert, forest, no, barren desert with all the pyramids and the city, plus also the, um, uh, the, you know, all the historical artifacts and all the tombs, the Valley of the Kings uh, on one side as well. So just see how they also farm, which is quite incredible because they don't have the machinery that we have. It's a lot of it is still very old school, literally cows dragging through uh, with all the equipment behind the cows. Uh, so, you know, when I see our, when I'm driving through our farms and seeing what they, we have, it's quite a perspective to know that these guys are, you know, being one of the oldest civilizations in the world, they're still using the ancient, what they've been using for thousands of years and still doing the same thing as well. So interesting, Terry. We talk with our farmers about the importance of getting their business, business models right so that it's their business models that work rather than them. You know, our businesses should work for us, not the other way around. How hard have you worked on the architecture and the sort of the framework of your business so that it is set up to give you that freedom and allow for you to, you know, work less, if you like, and um, enjoy these extended holidays each and every year? Yeah, I think, to be honest, I think it's always going to be still a work in progress, no matter what, where you are, because you always think of the next level. So my number one question is everything I do, I always ask, could somebody else be doing this on my behalf? And if there is one, why I'm not doing it? And then that's my next project is how do I get myself out of what I'm doing, that particular project, whatever it is, the task, and then could somebody else step in? There are, of course, some things that uh, I do love doing, i.e. jumping onto the live inner circle sessions and teaching. Uh, that is actually my passion. So mm-hmm. I will never let that go, despite maybe I could get somebody in, but I actually like and enjoy that. So even while I was in Jerusalem uh, recently, I still held, I still did a recording session in my hotel room, wanting to update people on what's actually happening, sharing them quickly of you know what my journey has been, but also you know with the holiday, but also what is really happening with the markets. So there are certain aspects that I will never let go because I do love that, but other aspects that somebody else could, uh, could do it better than me or faster than me, more efficient, et cetera, I'll let them do it. And there's always someone there that can always help as well. So always my number one question before, when I get into it, I'll do it the first time. At least I know what's going on and how to do it. And then if I can train somebody up or at least rec- quickly record, a, a, you know, um, these days with technology, record a video of how it could be done and send them the video. And then that gets done as well. So always finding someone to, to do that if possible. Yeah. So there's no doubt that Terry is one of Australia's most successful investors, but he's also an incredible entrepreneur. And it's so interesting to hear your comments there. And for our farmer listeners, you know, looking at those tasks, could I get someone else to do these tasks for me? And then looking at the just the quick systems structures you can put in place. Yes. And then looking to find someone who can come in and take that activity away from you. They might be able to do it better than you over time. But the key to success, I think, that entrepreneurs get more so than just the normal person is the concept of leverage. And as entrepreneurs, there's only four ways that we can leverage. We can leverage through money, we can leverage through marketing, and we can leverage through systems and then team. And what um, Terry's just talking about, even in his business, is getting the business model right and then looking at the systems and the team he can get around him so that he can have that leverage and that freedom that we want for so many of you. Yeah. Any other, any other comments on, on business and entrepreneurship, Terry, before we turn our attention to investing? Yeah, and I, I think it's also important is like when you get that right, then you one you'll one you'll see a lot more time come back to you. So you can then enjoy the lifestyle and the family time that I'm pretty sure everybody, every farmer would want as well. So you'll get that. And then you could also then have the freedom of time to pursue hobbies or think about the investment side as well, because a lot of people are so busy that they don't they get their business right, but they actually have no space in their in their in their mind about how do I leverage further of what I currently have financially? Uh, so that will give you space to then think about the investing front as well. And that side, again, systems. When you systemize everything step by step and everything's all, all, all done properly, it really should not, you know, people think investing, you have to have a full, you know, do it full time. It's actually counter, counterproductive. It's better that you don't spend too much time on investing uh, because you just go for the low hanging fruit. When the things are on sale and you know they're good investments or companies and stocks, you buy them and you can hang on to them long-term if they're good long-term stocks. And if they're more shorter term, you can buy them and a couple of months later, sell them. So it's just systemizing that process as well. And then, uh, I mean, even you know, recently 
on the holiday, I was on an overnight train uh, through a couple of cities uh, within Egypt, and I was able to put through orders with my Telstra Global Roaming. So I literally put long-term orders while I was traveling from city to city. Uh, so, and that took what, five minutes loading up on the computer. I really knew what I needed to buy, put the order through and I let it go. I didn't need the market to be open because I want, uh, there was a certain price I'm happy to pay for, putting that price. And then when the market's open, I'm sleeping or traveling, the, the orders get taken and I, I built my portfolio while I'm actually traveling through the country as well. So again, all about systems and finding ways where you can do it without you physically having to always check in on things, et cetera, as well. Yeah. So it works with business as well as investing. Thanks, Terry. Robert Kiyosaki's cash flow quadrant comes to mind. And if for those of you that haven't read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, it's a very worthwhile read. Hmm. Terry, if we could just spend a little bit of time on this, the four quadrants, I think, are really relevant, especially for our farmers that... If you, and to our listeners, if you have a pen and you can write this down, so much the better. Just draw a cross on a page and in each of the four quadrants, we've got in one hand the employee where we have a job and, you know, we trade time for money. And as an employee, we have very little leverage. Um, the next quadrant is when we are self-employed and this speaks to most farmers where we're stuck doing the work of our farms. That's where we own a job where we're still trading time for money, there's very little leverage. And what I understand, Terry, is that most people spend 80% of their time or more sort of stuck in these quadrants. And the other two quadrants, I think, are really interesting. Before we get into those, in those two quadrants, the employee quadrant and the self-employed quadrant, we're trading time for money. And that's where about 10% of wealth is created, as I understand. When we get into the other two quadrants, the next one is when we're a business owner, and that's when we have systems and people that work for us. That's when our people are making us money, and there's leverage in that through systems and people. The final quadrant, which is where you help us and our members, Terry, in particular, is in investing, where you are an investor, and that's where money works for you where you've got money making more money, and that's where you can create a passive income. So in these two quadrants, the income of the business or the income that you create for your family, it's not dependent on you. And this is where 90% of wealth comes from and can be created. Terry, I'm really keen for you to speak to this, and in particular, just how people can prioritise that transition from being self-employed yep. to being business owner and then prioritising investing. Yeah. I think with with all businesses, generally they always start at the self-employed, you know, sometimes a sole trader and they, they, they start there. And like you said, most people just get stuck there because they, they either don't want to or they haven't get, gotten to a stage where they could affordably afford somebody but I, I sometimes think you know you can't afford not to to have somebody start helping out and so that transition no matter what it's a pain it may be a painful transition but it has to be done at any at some point in time but then once you get there in a way you won't look back because you'll realize how more efficient and more time that you've actually by hiring just even just one person maybe at the start um, having them take a lot of stuff off you and then you know, building the business there. And then you go from one employee to second to second employee. And literally always, again, asking that question, you know, is there something else or is there something that I'm doing right now can be, can someone else can take over that that role? Uh, even if it's not 100%, because I think a lot of people where they get stuck is that they always have in their mind, there is nobody who can do the, be the job better than me. So they're always stuck there. And truth is, as a business owner, you don't need to. If someone can be hired and they can do, let's say up to 80%, 75, 80% of what, you know, the best of your ability, that's probably enough where if that releases so much time, why not have that? And then again, if it's only 80%, then you hire another person to do the, the other 80%. So now you're really leveraging, you know, where yes, they only do 80%, but once you have another person, they're literally doubling that up constantly now from 80% to 160%, something that now you probably could not have done on your own. So it's that transition that does uh, definitely need to happen. And then when you go into the business where I also see people go wrong is that, uh, and I think even farmers too, because I've got well over 300 plus farmers now that I've been helping. So just talking to them, knowing that 
you know, in the past is that they've been re- constantly reinvesting capital back into the business, which is understandable at the beginning. But there is some point that uh, it is important that even if it's a small percentage, so it becomes a, a habit or routine that you create that a, a certain small percentage, no matter how small, it's just creating that, that habit or routine that a certain percentage now flows down into the investor quadrant and then you start investing. And then that's when real passive income actually starts going. You know, there's no need to buy and sell. You can, if you've got still got no time, go as a longer term investor and just buy something and hold on to it. Because most companies, if they're done right, most of these companies will, uh, through dividends, will while you're getting the capital growth and waiting for that for years to come, uh, the these companies and stocks will also pay. Uh, if you're US stocks every quarter, they're paying you an income. If Australians, they usually pay every six months. So now passive income also starts as well while you're building wealth. So I've heard it said that the people who are truly creating wealth are spending nearly 50% of their time on the right-hand side of the quadrant, if you like, as business owners and investors. Do you agree with that, Terry? Or can you achieve real wealth creation allocating less time than that? Uh, Time-wise, no. If I, I believe that if you do it correctly and on the business side, I always believe that business, the business owner or the B in that quadrant will always produce the cash flow. That's the massive amount of influx of cash flow. And that cash flow, as long as it's done correctly and you start investing a, a percentage of that, then over time, I, will, I actually find that the I, the investor side, will in time overtake the business side. It actually will. As, assuming you're consistent enough to constantly do it. But if you stop and start and you do business and then you initially start that, then you lose momentum and you stop it, then that won't grow. But if you constantly have that routine and, and habit, which uh, I was thinking of talking to you earlier, Jeremy, where what I find is um, from interviewing a lot of farmers is that they, because I understand farmers, you know, with the farm community where there are certain times of the year where, you know, there's obviously seeding and then there's harvesting, et cetera. So there's always a, a massive influx. It's not every single month you make money. It's like, oh, cash flow's out. And then cash flow, a big lump sum comes back in, you know, depending on different times of year and what you do, you know, on your farms. So what I've seen a lot of the farmers do is whenever there's a massive cash influx in, what they try to do now is if they can, every quarter is set aside a certain amount. And then they and they've already earmarked that for investing. And that's pretty much earmarked for that and not investing back into the farm, but investing externally outside. So they're building off-farm wealth. And in time, what I have found is it gets to a certain stage uh, where I call it a tipping point where the portfolio is big enough that if ever you the farmer now has a um, an issue with, you know, whatever it may be, commodity prices dropping, uh, uh, not that the customers have left, et cetera, trade wars, whatever it may be, weather, droughts, bushfires, now that portfolio, now having that, it just gives them a, a very big peace of mind that no matter what happens, I'm okay. My family's okay on the farm and I'm not going to lose my farm because of that one event. And I think the earlier you think about that and plan for that and start, no matter how small, vital that it gets done. Um, and in time, you reap the rewards, basically. I think it's such an important point, Terry. I think a lot of us have had... Um, positive seasons over the last three years there has been fire and there has been flood mm. that has impacted us in this season or in one of those three seasons perhaps but for many farmers we've had um, above average rainfall above average commodity prices mm. low inflation low interest rates yes um, you know I think a lot of people have have found real optimism and real results over the last three years yeah. It's very easy for farmers to put most of that or all of that back into improving the farm yep. or even expanding. I just mm-hmm. want to encourage people to, to stop and, and listen to what Terry is saying for a moment and think about what percentage of your profits are you allocating off farm in a normal year and how much discipline do you have around that? And then how well are you focusing on your investment strategy outside of agriculture so that you are diversifying and taking the pressure off the farm that you have to be the sole thing that provides for you? Um, I think it's a great point, Terry. Um, You know, I think over time we can build with compounding and with real energy and effort around this to a point where our off-farm balance sheet outstrips our on-farm balance sheet. Yes. But where can people start? Like, 
I think a lot of people want like probably think that they've got to have a hundred grand or more put aside before um, they can make a start. Yeah. Where, where is the best place to start? No, the, the best place is it's not actually uh, that is in uh, in fact it's a I think it's a misconception. It's the best place to start is actually in fact start small because if you get educated, I think for the first firstly first best place to get started is get education. So at least you know what the hell you're doing. If you've got if you actually, unless you hate doing it or you totally don't want to do it, then maybe perhaps um, index funds or exchange traded funds. That would be the old, in a way, low cost. Some at least some some entity um, companies actually manage it for you. I know financial planners uh, can be involved, but if you do find one, is ensure that they are independent and not linked up to some bigger organization because with those, what will happen is because I used to be one, so I know that they have a limited. Uh, what they call authorized list that uh, usually manage funds, and that list may not be the best list. That's why sometimes there's this conflict of interest. You know, they're if they're working for someone else, uh, there you'll see that your investments go towards that company type thing who runs it. So definitely independent if you are going financial planning. But there are financial planners who are independent and they they charge for the advice, but they go they find the lowest cost, which is usually index funds. So they'll take you there, and if you find that they give you that advice, then you know that it's a, a proper a proper financial planner. They're not going for the high end. Uh, however, don't expect to shoot the, the, the lights out in terms of performance. Long-term, uh, index funds, these type of funds, is generally between that 6 to 8% per annum over a, a sort of a 20-year stretch. So they are not going to make you extremely wealthy very quickly. What I would prefer to do is what I call creating my own index fund where it, it is still as diversified, but only filling them up with, great companies because index funds primarily will have, say, let's say it's S&P 500, you'll have all 500 companies, all in different percentages, but they'll hold both good as well as bad companies. So you're not going to have any one company affect you financially badly, but then again, you're not going to get the growth that you want. But then why not flip it on its head and then create your own fund that only has the best companies that you know what, what they do? And a lot of them where people uh, sort of get nervous about is that they don't when they're investing, they're a bit scared about investing in the wrong thing. But if you do it well, you will find that your investments are in fact going to be companies that you'll know what they do because you use their products or services. So a lot of our investments or my portfolio, I actually have used their service, i.e. Apple. I have, yeah, of course, uh, and I see friends and family, the iPhone, their Macs, uh, Microsoft, which is all around me. So I use all their Microsoft software. I've got uh, basically a, a Microsoft laptop as well. So I know what the company does. Then you know, Pfizer, which we've recently been buying. We, of course, everybody pretty much knows what Pfizer does, pharmaceutical giant. Uh, they've been uh, one of the ones with the COVID vaccine and, you know, library of not just COVID, but a library of um, of other medications around the world as well. The Johnson & Johnson's, then there's food companies. So investment ideas are everywhere. So if you can fill up your portfolio with great companies that meet criteria, you are literally creating your own index and you're quite proud that you own this index because you know what they, what you own, but also you can scale because the, the biggest thing that when you start off small, and when I say small too, just to answer that question as well uh, before I go further in tangent, is that you don't need 100,000. And if you, if you did, I would say never start with 100,000. So if you've got hundreds of thousands sitting there, leave it there. Start with, say, 20,000, no more than that. And 20,000 doesn't mean... You invest the entire 20000 in one go. It just sits in a broker as cash anyway. And then you slowly invest that, and that will take you a couple of months at least anyway to use that up. And then that way, if you've got a, a systemized process, say like Blueprint, then you slowly tiptoe yourself into filling your portfolio with that 20000 And that way, it builds confidence because you'll see results, not financial results. You will find, you know, because it's such a small portfolio, even at 10%, you might, you know, you'll, you'll make $2,000, $3,000 a year, but it's not going to financially change your landscape. But at least what it's doing, it's, it's giving you the percentage gains. Then you realize, oh, what if I scale this baby up? Then you, when you see that, it's very black and white. When you see that, you'll go, oh, okay, this works. I'm now going to put an extra 50 in. Then I'll go to 100. And then, oh, a harvest is great harvest. A ton of profits come in. I'm now confident to now put a bulk of uh, the profits also across it to uh, this broken account to get ready for more purchases. So it's just starting small and scaling up over time and also ensuring that what you buy, you understand. That's the most important because if you don't understand what you're buying, 
you'll never have the confidence to scale. But if you have, you know what's in the portfolio and you know what you're buying, you'll have no problems scaling up because everything you touch, you've used their products and services. So you know the company quite well. And if you don't know it, spend a little bit of time, do a bit of research. It doesn't take long because all the tools these days are on the internet anyway. Um, yeah, and just start there, literally. And even literally start with, you know, people say, oh, where do I get investment ideas? I always say, go to your fridge, open up your fridge, go to your medicine cabinet, open up your medicine cabinet. You'll have so many products and all you do is just go back to the label and you will find that pharmacy, uh, like cosmetics, for example, you know, your partner uses cosmetics, et cetera. Every single cosmetic, there's only a few big companies that produce most of them on the planet anyway. So the parent company actually produces all, of, all different brands, but it's the parent company that owns all of them. So you go, oh, wow, L'Oreal owns all these cosmetics. I didn't realize that. So you'll find that these are the parent companies that you end up buying and you know that every single day, as long as my partner or myself, we use their products, this, com- this company is not going to go bust. And that's how you feel very safe and sleep well at night when you're creating a portfolio. So, Jeremy, I hope that helps. <laughs> a bit long-winded, but yeah. Not at all. That's perfect. So one of the things that I think we need to be really careful of in this space is abdicating responsibility. Um, if, if our wealth is created around how well we invest the profits from our farm, absolutely we could flick it off to someone else and keep our focus in the paddocks. But to some degree that's abdicating responsibility. I think one of the reasons, the reason we really respect you and the Freedom Trader, Terry, is that you don't do it for people. You teach people how to invest for themselves. And you teach people a proven um, method by which to value stocks, um, discern accurately between those good stocks versus those that won't perform. And you're on board to coach and mentor people to build out um, their skills and then their portfolios over time to, to absolutely succeed. Terry, a couple of questions. Would you mind speaking to your track record in this? Because I think you consistently outperformed um, oh, certainly the odds, but most other investors yes. by a fair stretch. Yeah. And then also just tell us a bit more about Freedom Trader and how it is that you help hundreds of farmers and so many other people outside of agriculture in investing. Yes, uh, not a problem. So, I mean, I began as a financial planner, like I said earlier, and banker. So I do understand you know, what financial planners do. And then I became, uh, I set up my own fund management. So I actually did manage people's money on their behalf over quite a long stretch, a 15-year stretch, in fact. So just looking in terms of record-wise, I, I want to make it clear, I don't get them all right. So out of every 100 investments uh, if on my record, it's sitting at about 82. So 82% are right. So eight out of 10 investments are right. I will always get two out of 10 wrong. And you have to expect that. No matter how much research you do, sometimes just bad timing, bad luck, whatever you want to call it, you'll never get them all right. And I've tried. But what people don't understand is if you go back into what financial planners do, they put your money into funds management, funds management companies that run funds. And I've and I've got fund management friends. If they get 55 to 60% of their calls, right, they are extremely happy and they'll get massive bonuses at the end of the year. So it's getting their, they're happy with between five and a half to six out of every 10 calls, right? So if you're getting the eight out of 10 consistently over time, you will do extremely well. So there's actually not, you have to worry about the the two wrong because the profits from the eight out of 10 will easily outstrip the the two out of 10 wrong that you get. And in fact, I've never had a, my entire history, I've actually never had a bankrupt company ever. It's because of the criteria uh, that if we put them into the portfolio, they have to meet quite stringent criteria to actually even be there. And financially, I let data rather than emotions drive. So I don't care what people say, uh, what you know, CEOs, um, what they they say on PR and the news channels. What I care about is the data and the numbers. Just like farming, that if the numbers don't match up, your farm's not going to do well. So it's the same metrics. And I find that the farmers also have quite a good knack with investing because all the criteria that you guys teach, Jeremy, at farm owners, it's the same thing. It's, you know, the return on the asset, return on the equity, what return, net profit margins what return are you actually getting to scale up your farm? It's exactly the same as stocks because they are businesses just like farms. They just It's just a different industry. So it's the same thing uh, from that point of view. Um, yeah, so in regards to the freedom trader, why, why I decided to do this rather than manage people's money is I, I realized that I could only help a select people who could afford to actually invest with me. Why not teach someone, not give them the fish because that's very short term, but why not teach them how to fish 
So then they can fish for life and don't have to rely on Terry because, you know, touch wood, one day if I'm not here, then, you know, you don't want to ever rely on anybody because like I always say, no one will care more about your money than you do. So ensure that you've got that skill level to run this till retirement and post-retirement. Uh, hence why I've decided to teach, you know, do the teaching and do it in a step-by-step fashion and remove all the jargon. So no matter what your background, non-financial, of course, farmers are non-financial. It doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, you're more than smart enough to actually uh, set up systems and investment system to actually do it consistently. And as a whole group, I actually find the farmers, uh, I mean, we've got 1,300 plus students, all different businesses, but farmers as a whole group, I find that consistency is actually from the farming side because um, I think I've mentioned this in, in previous podcasts because uh, you guys are already quite well-versed in that patience factor where city folk that I know and that run businesses, they don't. The moment they invest, they want to see their money to return. But whereas with farmers, they understand the, the, you know, the, the cycle where you plant a seed and you wait for the harvest. So you don't mind that patience and waiting for the right opportunity and then putting it in. Uh, so the results actually do speak for themselves. Most of our farmers do get the results um, quite consistently. Yeah. And Terry, your investment philosophy, you do look across international stocks as well as local stocks. And I understand your focus is investing in, you know, the best 100 companies on the planet. Yeah. Would you mind just speaking to that and, and how you select which ones make the grade and just giving us sure. a bit of an insight to that broad um, yeah. due diligence criteria that you work to? Yeah. So our, uh, why I go, you know, people say, oh, Terry, you, know, you live in Australia. Why not just stay here? The truth is, Australian, the Australian market is about 2% of the world economy. It is so small. And you can count on one hand, literally, uh, the Cochleas, the CSLs, the Macquarie Banks, the, the companies that are truly global Australian companies, not many make the cut. A lot of our companies like Telstra, they went to Asia, a couple of billion dollars lost, came back. Uh, NAB went to the UK, bought a few banks there, lost a few billion dollars, came back. ANZ went to Asia, also suffered, came back. So I don't know what it is that our Australian companies can't seem to go overseas and succeed and make it globally. So where do you go next? Again, every product that we use and service we use, the bulk of them, and I, I would say a lot of our, even the farming equipment, the Ds, et cetera, they're all made in the US and they're all listed there. So why not go to the world's biggest market? Uh, plenty of liquidity opportunities. So our focus is the S&P 500 companies. But again, doesn't mean that we look at all 500 companies because most, in fact, don't make a cut. In Australia, it's usually the ASX 200. We trade them. So there are cycles where a bank goes to a certain level, um, we sell it, it drops to a certain level, we buy it, and we, we're happy to, we're not greedy, we're happy to make that 5 10% in a month or two and then move on because, you know, you put your cash in the bank, what do you get? 4% in the, well, these days at least now, 3 to 4% in the entire year. But buying a bank at the right time you're getting four to five, four to ten percent in maybe two months, and we move on. So you're actually getting far better returns owning a bank, short term. And when I say short term, we're not day trading. We are holding them for a couple of months and then moving on because you will find that they always have this cycle. Twice a year, we trade the banks and even Telstra. I like I love it not as a company for holding it long term. You won't create wealth, but in the short term, you buy it and you sell it. So they're more shorter term trading. The longer term, if you want to buy and hold on to something, it is going to be the US companies usually. It's US listed, but they are truly global companies. The um, you know, the uh, the Googles of the world, the Microsofts, the Apples, uh, all of these companies are list mainly listed there. They've got a global market of you know almost 8 billion people. So why not stay there and makes life easier? Opportunities are there and hence why we go there as well. So, Terry, of the stocks that you're looking at at the moment and given what's played out for us over the last three to four months since we last spoke, yes. what's, what's happening broadly in the market and you know, what do you think is good value at the moment? Yeah, I think there's a lot of fear in the market where, you know, uh, when you go on YouTube and news channels, a lot of people talk about this great depression, potential depression-style recession that's going to happen in due course because of all the money printing, et cetera, et cetera, and the massive inflation. And the funny thing is, right, I always say data tells us a story, and I was already telling our members a year ago, and I said, guys, you know, this is not, it's got nothing to do with stocks, but we, as we can see, we can see the US yields, the Fed slowly creeping up their yields. And I just said to them, you know, you've got big farming loans, um, home loans, maybe consider 
speaking to the bank and maybe locking the rates because you're not going to get the 2 or 3% interest rates pretty much for a long time. So if that's what their rates are, maybe take the advantage and lock it in because inflation is going to hit. And now finally, like I think nine months later, after I said that, inflation data has come out and said that it's hitting now. And then, as we all know, interest rates have skyrocketed in literally the last quarter and the last uh, six months in particular. So very important that um, we understand uh, all the data points as well. Uh, so, oh, Jeremy, I just lost the train of thought in regards to where were you going because I was just talking about that. Uh, that's perfect. What, um, what, given what's played out with interest oh, yes. and inflation, yes. what sort of companies can handle that? And which companies do you see uh, in a global context handling uh, yes environment that we find ourselves in? Yeah, Jeremy, now uh, that also answers a question I didn't answer last time, so apologies for that. It's the criteria. So one of the biggest ones is debt. So most, con- um, any business, farm included, what kills most businesses over a long stretch of time is if they've got way too much debt, they've over-leveraged themselves, and in low interest rate, it's fine. But once interest, interest rates start creeping up like it has recently, it starts really eating into their net profits. And you know, in due course, they'll find themselves all their net profits all gone because of all high interest of their massive debts. So very important that companies we choose, one of the criteria, uh, that you did ask me about, you know, how do we get them in there, is low debt. And we have a, a rule where it's low debt to equity ratio of 40%. So no more than 40% of debt to equity ratio, basically, for companies. Um, and just to put that in layman terms, uh, I know when we go to finance a bank, you know, to buy a house, the banks will usually give us up to 80%. So we have 20% deposit in equity, uh, and then they provide 80% finance. So with a company, we have to go way more conservative, only 40%. 60% equity, 40% uh, debt. And that's maximum, in fact. What I generally want to see is only maybe in some companies, in fact, actually have no debt. So some of the Microsofts of the world, you see them and it's like, wow, they're generating crazy returns, but they've got hardly any debt on their balance sheet. There's no debt. It's 0.01% or something. So you know that they're internally generating. Um, it's a great business because they're in gen- internally generating returns without having to rely on bank debt. So that's one of them. Um, and of course, all the other factors like, you know, what's their net profit margin and stuff like that. So companies that have low debt, but also great profit margins. So whenever time comes where they get squeezed by commodity prices, supply chain issues, et cetera, and they have to lower their price, they're still going to be okay. Because no matter what happens in the global economy, these companies will not only survive, but they'll actually keep on thriving because they're not, they're not the only company on the planet that, that does what they do. So all their competitors around them will probably suffer even more if they've got high debts and their numbers don't match up to them. So while they suffer, their competitors are probably suffering even more. And these is generally when I see a lot of the major companies taking advantage now of taking over their competitors, you know, provided that it's not antitrust issues with you know, competition laws, et cetera. They take that opportunity to now swallow up their competitors. And we see that time and time again. Uh, example, PepsiCo, which, you know, everybody knows them with Pepsi, but really they're, they're a conglomerate with so many different brands on snack foods, breakfast, the whole lot. And all the different brands of carbonated soft drinks, energy drinks, they never created that in-house. They bought them because they, they the competitors were dying. So they gave them a lifeline as a white knight um, thing and they took advantage of low prices, uh, low valuations, and literally took them on board. And uh, that's the definition of a great company, finding these ones. And it sort of stands to reason that companies like that are, for want of a better term, recession-proof. You know, they yes. can withstand inflation. They can withstand interest rates. Um, they're not exposed to the vagaries that perhaps farming industries are exposed to. So what a great diversification strategy for people that are exposed to some of those realities. Yeah, and, and it's very easy to search to, you know, you look at the financials of great companies like the Pfizer's and Johnson Johnson's of the world and Microsoft, you'll never see, you know, uh, if you have 30 years of data, I mean, in 30 years, we've gone through quite a lot. You know, looking back, we've gone through recessions, multiple recessions, um, you know, um, GFCs, uh, September 11, uh, of course, Russia, Ukraine, coronavirus. Despite all this, you see every year their, profit mar- their net profit margins maintain and their return on equity maintain, return on assets maintain, and their, their um, cash, because they're getting bigger and bigger, they're reinvesting it, their um, cash profits are getting larger and larger. So that, hence why the company is becoming bigger and bigger over time. And no matter what, any year, when you look into it, they might dip a little bit during the, uh, say, GFC, 
But then within a year, they've not only uh, gone back to where they were, but they've actually surpassed their previous pre-GFC because now they've swallowed up another company and their profits of the smaller company now get added onto the balance sheet and net profit uh, net profit and loss statement. So they get bigger and bigger because of that. So that's a definition of a great company that's recession-proof, no matter what happens and he's thrown at them pretty much. Terry, what's your expectation around inflation and your expectation around interest rates over the next two or three years? We're not going to hold you to this, but do you have a view on what might play out? I know for farmers, we're in an environment where we are seeing inflation impacts most of our expense items and we may well be coming into a period of softening commodity prices and as you say, so many of us are exposed to the increased interest rates that are happening. Yes. What are your, what are your expectations around those three constructs? Yeah. So inflation-wise, uh, data's just come out from the United States, and generally that flows to the rest of the world. So consumer spending is actually still quite high, uh, despite price increases. And um, the other thing that went uh, that is still very high is is uh, job uh, people looking for jobs. So the the hiring side is still quite still quite strong. So that's where now the you know the central banks around the world they've got a bit of a dilemma where on one hand they need they know they need to control inflation uh, before prices keep on rising even further so they are doing that with of course the interest rates so my expectation is that inflation it's definitely been tamed but it's not finished so the next six twelve months inflation is still going to be there they're saying that inflation from six and a half you know at one stage it was over ten percent during COVID but then. By end the next end of this year to mid next year, it's going to be back to its normal zone of one and a half two percent. I don't believe that's right. You, they always obviously put an optimistic uh, optimistic spin, but there is no way to drive inflation down that quickly unless, of course, they hike up interest rates even further faster. But by doing that, they've got this balancing act where if they go too fast, too too large, they will now tip the their economy plus the global economy into a recession. So now. That's why the central bank's role with the Fed has quite a hard task of slowly creeping it up, but not totally tipping it on the other hand, where now there's a recession and uh, they suffer even more, unemployment starts skyrocketing, and then they've got a reverse course, which is what the United States always does. They go through 180 and they reverse every all the good work they've done. So in summary, inflation is going to remain, it's tamed. I don't think it's going to run away again, like what they've done um, in the last 12 months. I think it's tamed and it will slowly go down. I don't think it's going to go down that quickly to 2%. So in, you know, when you said three years down the track, I, I think it will be in three years down the track. But in the next 12 months, definitely not. So what that means is that interest rates will continually still need to go up to maintain that and slow it down. And hence why they're expecting another 025 to 0.5% interest rate increase in the United States. And then the world always follows. So our RBA here will always watch what they're doing and they'll also creep it up as well over time. Maybe not to the extent of what the United States is doing, which they haven't done so far, but they're still going to creep it up over the next uh, 12 months. Thanks, Terry. There's been a little bit of commentary in the media at the moment around superannuation and the government proposing increased tax rates on super. Yeah. What, what, how do you see that debate playing out and do you see that having a, an impact on SMS self-managed super funds and people with significant superannuation? Uh, I think it's a, a I'll, I'll call it a bit of a PR disaster uh, from, from the government at the moment because I think they they realise uh, the, the uproar, which when I heard about it, I was actually, it's like, this is not a, a great policy what they're doing because one of the biggest things about super is, is you know, I think what they haven't realised is, is set in stone, like what is superannuation for? Like, is it... Is it for retirement? And if it is, uh, why are they doing what they're doing? And it's not about just you know um, providing tax breaks for those for the super wealthy, so to speak. It's because it's going to affect a lot of people as well. And despite them saying it's only going to affect, I think it was eighty thousand people or something. Uh, it is not. I think it's going to affect way more people. And I don't think they actually thought about it properly because you know most politicians who come out with these with these some of these silly rules is they're sitting in their I call it sitting in their ivory tower. They got their government pensions because they're a politician, and they don't really understand what is really happening uh, on the you know on the ground. And I think it's totally un- if if that's what they want is for people to have trust in the super system and put more into it, and not always tinker around 
you know, wondering, oh, in three years down the track, what's going to happen again? Um, they should not be doing what they're doing because, I mean, in a way, they're talking about the three million threshold. Yes, it's not going to affect the majority of people. Uh, I have confirmed that it's three million per person. So if you've got a self-managed super fund, it's basically six million in total, half half, which means that in a way, for the majority of people, it probably won't. You probably will not affect that because most people in their lifetime will never have six million dollars worth in their super. I think that they're they're expecting. Uh, in their lifetime, about seven seven hundred fifty thousand. The majority of the Australian population. There are some people, of course, um, who have business premises, um, maybe potentially farmers who have farm farmland inside super that can take that through that. Uh, but I want to make it clear too is that it's the three million. It's still anything up to three million in asset. It's still fifteen percent. It's anything above, like marginal tax rates. Anything above th- uh, three million, then it goes to the thirty percent tax rate. So it's a marginal system. What I think they need to do, though, if they are going to push this through, it's not law yet, by the way. It's still going to get, uh, I think it's going to get knocked back and they'll have to go somewhere in the middle. But if it does pass, I think what they do need to do, though, is putting in an indexing system. But you can imagine 3 million now, in 10 years, 3 million is not the same, but yet they have indexed it. So it's not 3 million plus 2% inflation rates. So it creeps up every year to, to be fair because asset prices rise and 3 million now, means nothing in, in 20 years' time. It's, it's half. Even at 2%, it's, it's literally half. So it's a very silly system without thinking it properly, uh, hence why all this backlash. And there's another thing too, Jeremy, that I just found out as well, that it's not just the three uh, this 30% tax rate above 3 million they're talking about, but they were thinking about, I don't think it's going to go through, they were thinking about taxing anything above 3 million unrealized gains. So you can imagine... If you bought something, an asset that was one million, you're not selling it, and you hold it, and now it's now four million, you haven't sold it, so there's physically no cash in there. They want to tax it at thirty percent. The the earnings of anything above thirty, the three million threshold, they're gonna they want to tax that unrealized gains. That is just very to me very silly thinking, and I don't know how they're gonna do that because it means now for someone to pay their bill, the tax bill, they physically need to sell that, and as you know, asset prices go up and down. So in one year, the market might be great and they tax their unrealized gain. And the next year actually drops back, but they've paid their tax on the unrealized capital gain, which is just a very bad system if it gets pushed through. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot more rigor needs to be put to this and it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. Um, mm. Hopefully, superannuation can continue to be, you know, a and a tax effective way of people creating wealth long term without too much change. Yeah, yeah. I think it's 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 them getting understanding what super is really for. It's so they can relieve the the government pain 20, 30 years down the track that they don't have to provide pensions for everybody. But the way they're doing it is they they're scaring a lot of people from even uh, putting money into superannuation because every so many years, each every time change of government or they've got a hole in their budget, they tinker around with the super. So they lose people lose faith in the system. And the worst case they can have is it'll backfire where people have no faith in the system and then now don't put their money super. So in 20, 10, 20, 30 years time, when come pension time, they're going to have a bigger problem, bigger hole, because everybody has not done their superannuation extra contributions, especially business owners. They have not maximized it, uh, not because of just tax reasons, but because they truly want to retire properly uh, in 20, 30 years time, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when they're 65, 70. And if they haven't done that, because everybody had no confidence and faith in the system, now they've got more people down a track needing the government pension, which will be way, a way worse scenario. Terry, you mentioned those key criteria that you look at investments and apply to make sure that you're investing in, in good um, stocks. Yes. We've got a similar set of criteria that determine what a farm needs to achieve in its lifetime. And one of those criteria is that um, it needs, the in, the older generation needs to be able to retire um, positively and independently from the farm mm. with, without ideally needing to call on the farm for their retirement. Yeah. Just on this, if, if I'm 40 years old and I'm sitting here and I can call on um, the profits from my farm to you know, to put forty or fifty thousand dollars into an investment portfolio. Yep. 
what's possible over a 30 or 40 year time frame for me. If, if every year I can make a contribution to an investment portfolio from my farm business. Uh, and it depends on how much, uh, did you say it was 30 to 40,000 per Let's year? Let's say hypothetically. Let's say I've got 200 grand to start with. Yep. No, I, I learned how to invest that well. Yep. I can put 40 or 50 grand a year. Yep. As profits from my farm into an investment portfolio. Yep. What's possible for me? Uh, quite massive. So this through the payoff compounding. So I don't have the calculator with me, but even if it's just assuming you put nothing in at that two hundred thousand that you're talking about, every if you do it well, every five three to five years, you you're doubling your you're basically doubling the capital. So. If done well, that 200 initially without extra contributions, that 200 become 400, give it another, say, three to five years, then that 400 becomes 800, and then another three to five years, 800 becomes 1.6 million. That's that power of compounding. Mm -hmm. So just that alone will take it to seven figures quite quickly. And then now, if you're contributing, you can imagine every 40,000 you're putting in, that also does the same thing. So that 200, it's about one-fifth of it, so... It's you know, it's 400, 440,000, and then it becomes 880, uh, sorry, 220,000, uh, no, 240,000, sorry, 200 plus 40, and then it becomes 480, and 480 becomes, um, and then now you're adding more uh, to it as well. So every, because you're contributing, it'd be a seven-figure portfolio quite quickly, in fact. And that's, in fact, how I did it way back. I started with 30 and then 50, and then took it to, it, it did, initially, you won't see a massive, change but if you keep on doing it it's that compounding effect then all of a sudden once you're on seven figures and even i went into seven figures seven figures once you're on half a million plus in in that portfolio it really becomes like a compounding machine it's just literally as, assuming you don't dip into it and start putting money out to spend right away if you have that that sort of patience to hold off for another you know five years that literally will just compound almost like a little snowflake rolling down the mountain and it becomes quite a big snowball rolling down the mountain. And you can't stop it, in fact. And it'll get to a certain point where if it's in seven figures, it'll keep on compounding and you'll be able to draw onto it and still have have a great lifestyle, but still, you know, you're not going to be spending, um, you know, a million dollars a year. You'll have, you basically will have the, the other half, half spent, half still compounding in the background. So that makes up for what you're spending, which is great. So your capital never actually loses value. So we talk about how most people massively overestimate what they can achieve in a year, but ridiculously underestimate what they can achieve in 10. Yes. You mentioned that there's a tipping point where yeah. the farm wealth that you create can outstrip yeah. the set base that you have in agriculture. Yes. I just want to put that to everyone listening, that that's entirely, entirely possible for all of us, that hmm. we might have a significant asset base in agriculture yeah. But if we can learn the principles and then apply these principles in an efficient way consistently over time and be allocating a percentage of our farm profits to an off-farm investment like that that Terry coaches us around consistently year on year, mm. what we can achieve in our lifetime and for our retirement and for perhaps off-farm children by way of succession can be beyond our comprehension. Correct. So the law of compounding is absolutely worth understanding. Most people don't understand it, but but yeah. investing now and then letting that build exponentially over time and compounding on each other can see us create wealth beyond our wildest dreams off farm as a complement to our farm. Terry, for those that have been with you for a while and those that you see with that off farm diversification. Yes. What does it mean for them as a family if they've got a significantly a significant farm asset and a really strong and profitable farm asset? Yeah. An off-farm investment portfolio that at least matches their on-farm balance sheet. Yeah. What does that mean for them? What's that like for them and for their extended family and, and perhaps for the legacy that they get to create? Yeah. I just know for a fact that once they have that, uh, they let go of the fear of what's around the corner. So going forward, they, don't, they never have to worry about the environment. Whatever environment throws at them, they're okay. So that's a peace of mind for, for one thing. And then the other thing too is uh, knowing that intergenerational wealth they're, they're creating for that legacy where uh, in the past I've heard, you know, where farmers have to sell uh, a part of their land, et cetera, cut down, you know, basically resize their farm. So part of that now can fund their retirement so they can, uh, uh, you know, 
transition to their children to have the, the farm that they've got left. But then having a portfolio that supports them, they don't need to do that. So you can imagine that whatever farm is, is there, it's a legacy. They, uh, the children come in, provide they still want to run the farm. They run it, but they never had to sell any part of the land at all. They'll just keep on running it and just transition to uh, the next generation. And on the other side, their portfolio has is enough to generate whatever they've been deriving income out of the farm. So two-pronged approach. One is short-term, uh, at least give them a peace of mind for whatever happens. But long-term, uh, they don't need to ever sell the farm or any parts of it, which is great. So that's what I'm seeing and hearing about. Thanks, Terry. So you will have heard me say this before, but we recommend Terry's investment program, the Freedom Trader program, his um, investment blueprint program incredibly highly. It's, it is unreal. Um, I'm moving through it and applying what I'm learning um, to our situation with real results, and I'm really happy to advocate for this program. We're running a webinar with you, Terry, on Wednesday, the 5th of April. Yes. Um, de details of that we'll provide to you shortly. Highly recommend for those of you that are interested in, in rounding out your skills in this and getting underway in building an investment portfolio that complements your farm. Again, we recommend Terry and his program highly. Terry, would you give us a bit of a snapshot of what they can expect for that webinar on the 5th of April? Yeah, so uh, it's going to be not a typical webinar. So make sure that you've got your sleeves rolled up. Uh, pen and paper ready. Uh, there will be a download that you'll download as well, uh, like a little workbook. So I call it more of a, like a, a, a online workshop instead where, one, I want to teach you, but I physically want you to also do it at the same time. So while we're going through examples and I've taught you something, I physically, I always believe in learn and do, learn and do, then that way it, you, you, you actually get it. So while I go through examples, you'll be going through um, actually doing ex exercises to to uh, solidify what you've learned as well. So primary, what we'll be going through is uh, showing you how to understand the world, one, one free tool that's out there, and it'll allow you to know ahead of time what is really around the corner. Is there going to be uh, a global recession? Is there going to be, there's a lot of stock market volatility? Funny enough, this free tool actually shows you that ahead of time. And not only for, for the stock investing, but you know, for you running a farm, it also can help you because you, then you can pre-plan, like let's say you're thinking about buying another farm next door, then if you know there's something going to be happening around the corner in three or four to six months down the track, why would you take it now? Maybe hold back in case. And then when the time does come, not to say you don't have to buy it, you won't buy it, but when the time do, does come, you can imagine a better getting a better price, you know, if there is a global pullback. Because I always believe global pullbacks should never be feared. They should be taken advantage of. So when that happens, we should always be cashed up and take advantage. So uh, that's one thing you will learn, how to see the world. But then the other side is uh, the other half will be learning how to physically choose, uh, eliminate bad stocks, but also choose great stocks. So you'll go through, you know what, Jeremy, you, when you ask me what are the criteria, so you'll hear about those criteria and, and you'll be physically doing uh, that. They'll be physically doing it as well uh, in terms of going through the criteria and selecting those great stocks. And by the end of it, you should be quite confident in knowing at least, you know, how to get started and what to actually do. Good stock, bad stock, knowing the, where the world is, et cetera. Right. Thanks, Terry. So that's Wednesday, the 5th of April. Look out for details of that shortly. Um, in addition, Terry's offered to record a short video for us as an economic update um, that will go out to our members and our broader FOA community on a quarterly basis. Terry, Thank you for that and, and for offering that as a way in which of keeping our members informed of you know, your view of what's playing out globally in the stock market and the broader economy. Looking forward to seeing that come online from yeah. um, shortly and ongoing. So thank yeah. you. For no, no worries. I'm very welcome, Jeremy. And I think you know it delves into even more detail about some of the questions you asked uh, about inflation. What's my thoughts about inflation, uh, interest rates, et cetera. Uh, in fact, that, that short video will go through all that in multiple uh, global economies from the United States to Australia to Europe and China because literally these major economies do drive the world and not unemotionally looking at the data, we will know what is actually happening and what to expect, you know, 12 months down the track because uh, all that's presented there as well. Terry, as always, great to connect. Thank you so much for your time. One last question. Yes. Where's your next holiday? Still thinking. Uh, we've got a couple of options. One was 
while I was on the trip, everybody talked about Morocco, how incredible Morocco is. But something that I've always wanted to do is uh, the, uh, because I, I love wildlife. So seeing the migration, I actually want to follow the migration because uh, all the wildebeest, uh, the elephants going to their waterholes. So just literally being in Africa, and I've been to Africa a couple of times already, but I've never seen the migration and just being able to follow their tracks and be in the, the four-wheel drive and just watching as they're running through and searching for the waterholes, uh, you know, that would be an amazing experience. So I think that is that is definitely high on the list as well. Perfect, Terry. So we've covered a fair bit, ladies and gents, from superannuation tax changes, which is topical at the moment, to inflation, interest rates, um, about moving from being self-employed and an employee to being a business owner and an investor to making that a priority. Um, the importance of skilling up through programs like Terry's to make the most of um, the opportunity to build out an investment portfolio, the importance of allocating profits each year to building out an investment portfolio. And if you do that consistently and diligently over time, how that can create wealth outside of agriculture that is a real complement to the farm asset that you have. Um, as I say, Terry, always great to connect. Thank you so much for your time and look forward to seeing you online on the 5th of April. No worries. Thank you, Jeremy. And always a pleasure to be here as well. Thanks, Terry. Take care, everyone. Bye for now. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Profitable Farmer podcast by Farm Owners Academy. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a long-time listener, let your friends know about us or come continue the conversation in the Profitable Farmer Facebook group. All the best as you grow your business and create your freedom farm. Until next time, keep being incredible.